0: Hello and welcome to the Filmmaking Stuff podcast, where you'll get insider tactics on how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, LA based motion picture executive Jason Brubaker. Hey, filmmakers, Jason Brubaker with Filmmaking Stuff, where we show you how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Today's conversation is awesome. We're going to be talking with Craig Spector. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's a screenwriter. He's a musician. Uh, His 13 books, they have millions of copies in print and reprints in seven languages. His film and television work includes A Nightmare on Elm Street, Five, and Projects for Anonymous Content, New Line Cinema, ABC, NBC, Fox. And the wonderful world of Disney, among quite a few others. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could throw that one in because it always throws people off. You know, like I didn't,
0: even, I didn't even get through your bio, and you're already interrupting me. Let me get through your bio. Uh, Craig's also a musician, as I mentioned. There's three albums released in the last three years: Resurrection Road, Outpost, and Kicking Cans. Uh, and you currently live in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, I also want to add to the, you know, to this conversation a little bit about our history. I, I consider Craig a mentor. Back when I was trying to start in this crazy career, there was one person I knew who was working in Hollywood, and and, Cra- and it was Craig Spector, and he was. Um, I, g- I guess you've known my aunt for a really long time, and my aunt connected us, and and Craig and I had many conversations. Uh, a lot of them were, you know, pretty optimistic, and sometimes uh, Craig, you were actually pretty hard on me in those early days, and I and I remember I remember the lessons pretty well. So it's. It's kind of a fun conversation to be able to chat with you after all these years and just kind of see where we were versus where we're where we're at now. And I think to hop into this, though, you know, one of the things that I was inspired by growing up, my aunt would always talk about her friend that was a novelist. And I, I was a little obviously younger than you. But back in the 80s. You were instrumental with your writing partner John Skip in kind of ushering in this whole thing called Splatterpunk. Yeah, yeah, What the heck is Splatterpunk? Well, at the
1: time, it was a—it uh, was kind of like the Satanic Musketeers in a way. <laughs> <laughs> it was a uh, Splatterpunk was just this thing that happened. It was this very organic sort of. Emergence at the time in the mid to late '80s of uh, not just myself and my my then writing partner, but a few other authors like David J. Scow, um, Clive Barker, uh, Richard Christian Matheson. Um, We all met each other around the same time, and we were all sort of breaking out in all these different ways and. For me, I was reading, I was meeting these guys. I thought they were really cool. I'm reading their stuff. I love it. And we were all kind of uh, going at horror from our own uh, unique angles, which was a sort of a, a fresh reinvention of what had at that point become a little bit of a hidebound and moribund genre. You know um of uh, with great work in it but uh it, it we we kind of freshened up we brought a kind of a rock and roll edge into it all you know
0: yeah I kind of remember you were if I understand it correctly all of you had kind of moved to New York at the same time and you were trying to make names for yourselves
1: uh no not really I mean Clive was was in in England uh, and Richard has always been in Los Angeles John and I had moved to New York uh, which is where we wrote and sold The Light at the End and, and launched our respective writing careers. Um, but it was, uh, we would meet at these conventions, these horror conventions that would be all over the place, you know, all across the United States. Um, and we would just uh, get together, hang out. And at, even at that point, our fans were kind of a little bit of everywhere. Um, and so uh i we pretty quickly developed a a weird niche but global fan base
0: what's in all of the trade conventions and trade shows came after you'd actually gotten something published so take a step back and talk about your early days in new york um how did you how did you get something sold and published i mean i think a lot of people want to know how to break in
1: i always like to tell people that uh Everybody's destiny is uh, kind of like if you ever watch the old Warner Brothers cartoons and you watch Bugs Bunny like run through the wall and he leaves a perfect Bugs Bunny shaped hole. And then Davy Duck runs through the wall and leaves a perfect Davy shaped hole. And that's what your destiny looks like ultimately. Um, The door that's going to open for you is going to be perfectly shaped to you at that moment in time. And pretty much nobody else could have gone through that door but you. Uh, because you make the door happen. And so it's very uniquely keyed and calibrated to where you are, who who you have met, what you're trying to do. And all of these things just kind of come together into this serendipitous moment. And then you have an opportunity. When that door opens, you, you either step through and proceed on to the next the next leg of the journey or you don't. And then the door
0: usually closes. What was uh, what was the door that opened for you?
1: Well, for the door that opened for me is odd because uh, I was actually I had um, I had never planned on being a writer. I had no plans whatsoever on being a writer. Uh, I was going to be a professional musician, and I was finishing up my uh, degree program at the Berklee College of Music in Boston at the time. And this was the early eighties. This is like 1982. And one weekend I was riding on the T with my then girlfriend and we were going to Harvard square to see a feel good double feature film festival of the deer hunter and taxi driver. Oh wow. And <laughs> yeah, really. So, um, we were standing on the last car as the, uh, as the train was coming up out of the uh, tunnel going over the Charles River Bridge, and I was just watching through the rear window. And I turned around to my then girlfriend and apropos of nothing said, What if there was a vampire in the subways? And she kind of looked at me like, Uh-huh. You know, and I was just I instantly just I started rationalizing this this weird thing I just said I'm like no no think about it and I was immediately transposing it to the subways of New York which are much bigger and much scarier uh, and I said look if he's up If he's a native-born New Yorker, he's perpetually buried in his native soil, so he doesn't need a coffin. He can just crawl off into the tunnels and and lay down, and he's good to go. And it's always nighttime in the tunnels, so he can kill 24 hours a day, so nobody will immediately recognize what's happening as, as it's a vampire. And if he's really vicious about it and doesn't just leave two little neat holes in people's necks but just tears them to pieces, they won't think vampire. They'll think subway psycho. And the last bit was because it was the early 80s. I'm like, and if he's a punk, he already looks like he's dead and no one will notice the transformation. (laughs) And so this was this idea, you know. And my then girlfriend looks at me like, uh huh, you know. And so I'm like, well, I don't know, you know. And then we go marinate. Uh, I go marinate for, you know, what, about four and a half hours or thereabouts on the Feel Good Film Festival of the Deer Hunter and Taxi Driver. And I come back and I'm still thinking about this thing the whole way back uh, to our apartment. And so I call up my old friend, John Skip, who I'd known since high school. We played in bands together, et cetera, et cetera. And John at the time was living, had just moved to New York and was trying to make it as a writer. And he had sold a couple of short stories to uh, a great little magazine called Twilight Zone magazine uh, that was out at the time that was based off of the TV series. And I said, I've got this great idea for... A story, you know, punk vampire in the subways, blah, blah, blah. You know, why don't we why don't we write it and and sell it to Twilight Zone and make a couple hundred bucks, it'll be great.
0: Yeah, so so he was already doing some of the writing and had published and but you came up with this idea that yeah just kind of grabbed you, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. I was just intrigued with the idea. I thought it was great. You know, and his first reaction was, I'm busy. (laughs) And um you know (laughs) And he was. He had his own projects. He was, you know, what what the hell is this? Sure. You know, um, and over the next, I don't know, six months or so, uh, whenever we'd talk or if I'd go down to New York to visit, I'd always be like, what about that story? What about that story? What about that story? And finally, I was down one weekend visiting, and I said, what about this story? And I think he said – he was basically – Something along the lines of, uh, I, I have officially become sick of this. Um, so we're going to go and borrow a friend's apartment, and we're going to write this story tonight and just be done with it. And I'm like, great. you know. So we go borrow a friend's uh, apartment down on the Bowery, um, and we had... We had file cards and sharpies. I mean, this is before computers. you know, this is before a laptop kids. yeah, um, but we had uh, three by five file cards and sharpies. And we just started, you know write, jamming on story ideas, <coughs> just beats of story and writing them on the file cards and, and laying them out. And by the time the sun came up, a couple of things had happened. Uh, we had completely covered every square inch of the floor of this little apartment with file cards. Uh, We had way too many cool ideas to ever fit into a short story. Uh, uh, But the other thing about it is um, we knew – I I didn't know a lot about publishing, and and John knew some about publishing, but more than me. Uh, But at that time, there wasn't uh, much of a market for uh, vampire short fiction. There was, however, uh, courtesy of the success of Stephen King and Anne Rice, uh, a market for vampire novels. So there we were with lots of ideas to fit into a novel, you know, and the idea that there is a market for this. And I went back to Boston. I was, you know, finishing up at Berkeley. And a couple of weeks go by. And one day I come home. there's a big envelope in my mailbox and I open it up and John had had uh, written the first draft of the first chapter of uh, what became the novel the light at the end
0: so just to recap here you filled up an entire apartment with with note cards it was too long for a short story so you guys said hey I think this fits more as a novel yeah but what I think is interesting, though, is you were you were back then. You were thinking about the marketability of the of the project, because I think that's very rare for even you know people these days to think about the marketing while they're creating something.
1: Yeah, I I guess um, for me it's always been very natural. I mean, uh, I have always felt like, and I guess it's part of my uh, my artistic and creative sort of uh, wiring that. Uh, uh, any story worth telling is a story worth selling. Yeah. And if I'm going to spend the hours, days, weeks, months of my life that it takes to create something, to create a story, I'm goddamn well going to sell it. Right. Right. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll find a market for it and I'll get it out there because what good is it to just, you know, create something and then just put it on a shelf. So
0: you know, uh, so, speaking of the shelf, in this case, you came home and it wasn't you know the, the manuscript wasn't on the shelf; it was in your mailbox. So John had taken all those three by five cards after your um, brainstorming session and and just wrote out a rough draft.
1: Well, he wrote the first chapter.
0: Yeah, okay. But that's, first chapter.
1: that that started the ball rolling, you know. And then as time went on, you know, I pretty quickly wrapped up. I graduated from Berkeley, got my degree. And then in fairly short order, I moved from Boston down to New York, largely to pursue writing and finishing this novel. Yeah. And, you know, I get down there and, you know, I gave up a great apartment that I had up in in Boston and moved into this this little – my girlfriend and I moved into one room in this little house in Queens that we were sharing with – uh, like six other people, including uh, including your aunt and John Skip. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean we were wow. all packed in, a, and we're all like in our early twenties, right? And we're just all crammed into this crazy little house. You know, we you know uh, the the little bo- little residential block in Queens. You know, and everybody's got the little American flag stuck in the in the door, yeah. you know, flag holder out front. We got a pirate. We have a pirate flag, <laughs> and um, so it was just one of those kind of things. And um, and then. We were just working on um, working on the story. I took over. Uh, John quit the band he was playing guitar in to concentrate on working on the book. And I took his place as the guitarist in the band. And then I needed a job. Uh, he was working at a messenger service. And so I went down. And interviewed, and uh, I got a job as a messenger.
0: So, just just for any listeners that aren't even sure what a messenger service is, because this was way before you know you could open up your smartphone and push a button and something magically appears.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, to, <laughs> I, I kind of know a little bit about this story, so I, I know where this is going. But tell our listeners um, what what messenger what a messenger service was back in the day in New York City. Well, as far as I
1: know, messengers are still used in place in new york city and, and in other major cities um, and uh, back in the day, very much so because you you couldn't just email something across town. Yeah, so basically, we'd be out on the street and you know, there was a central office that we we you know came to and went out of, but then we'd be just out on the street in Manhattan. And we used payphones a lot because this was before cell phones were really regular. Um, and we would just call in and tell the dispatcher where we were, and they would send us to pick something up at point A and deliver it to point B. Wow. And as it turned out, it was a really great way. Uh, well, And also, there were all different types of messengers. There were uh, van messengers, bike messengers, and... Um, and foot messengers. John was a foot messenger. And I didn't want to do, you know, I, I figured I can't make enough money as a foot messenger because you get paid by the piece. And um, and I didn't want to ride a bike because that seemed insane. Uh, and I didn't have a van. So um, I became a roller skating messenger. And as far as I know, uh, in 1982, 83, uh, I think I was one of the first roller skating
0: messengers in new york city that's that's amazing
1: if only because i did it for about two years and i i I never saw another one uh the whole time i was out there fair enough and
0: it really
1: meant just basically combat skating 20 miles a day through midtown manhattan through all kinds of weather i mean I, i rain snow sleet everything winter summer fall um i was out there duking it out and um you know, with a bag slung over one shoulder and just dodging traffic. And it turned out to be kind of a, this wonderful experience because I got to learn the city very quickly. And I also got to learn the city pretty much from the gutter up. Because I would be out in the street, you know, literally on the sidewalk, on the, in the street, in the gutter, everywhere. You know, seeing all kinds of people, and then I'd be going into these, into these buildings, and uh, delivering up to penthouses, right? You know, and private resident, you know, all kinds of things. You just you meet, your paths cross with so many different kinds of people. It was a great way of uh, acquainting myself uh, with the city and kind of becoming a a new newly minted New Yorker, um, and it also ended up. Uh, Working itself into the fabric of the novel because as we had mapped it out, uh, when you have a punk vampire roaming loose in the subways of uh, downtown uh, Midtown Manhattan, uh, the perfect people to hunt a punk vampire in the subways are messengers. Interesting. Because they're fast, they're mobile. They're networked together, and they're the only ones crazy enough to figure out that the subway cycle is actually a vampire. And so that – it worked. It just wove itself into the fabric of the story. And then it also, um, strangely enough, became part of how I sold the book once we had finished writing it.
0: Right, so so you had the first chapter, then then you started writing on it, then you moved to New York, and you guys continued writing, but then you got the job as a messenger, and somehow, um, you know, messengers became part of the story, and now you leverage your job. I, I cut you off in terms of where you were going to go next, so sorry about oh, that. Oh, yeah, well, so out.
1: we were just, you know, John and I uh, were working out our rhythm as a collaborative writing team. And um, we would sort of tag team, you know, on the writing of it and uh, writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting uh, as we sort of churn through the manuscript. And, you know, it's kind of work by day, work the streets as a messenger by day and write at night. And for me, it was write and and also play guitar in this uh, crazy rock band uh, by night. And. We finally, we had a manuscript, uh, we were shopping it around, we didn't have agents or anything, but we'd read books, the books like How to Get Happily Published, and uh, whatever the year, the 1983-84 Writer's Guide, um, to try to get a sense of how can we get our manuscript out there. Yeah. Um, and then, one day, I came in, uh, I, I skated in to the dispatch office and John was there and, and you know, we're checking out for the day and he handed me this photocopy of something from, uh, it was a, a page out of this, uh, little genre publication called F and SF like fantasy and science fiction. That was like a little industry rag. And it said something about, uh, T E D Klein, Ted Klein uh, had sold uh, the paperback rights to his book The Ceremonies for a hundred thousand dollars to Bantam books. And Ted Klein, as it happens, was the editor of Twilight Zone magazine. Interesting at the time. And Ted Klein had also kind of taken a liking to young John Skip and his work and had gone so far as to write him a little, Sort of a letter of recommendation that he could put, you know, attached to the to the pitch that we'd be sending around that was on Twilight's own letterhead, and you know, just said to whom it may concern, I I commend to your attention the works of one John Skip, a young writer of great promise. You know, sincerely, Ted Klein, and um, so we had that, and. We looked at each other, and I, re- I remember thinking, and you know, thinking out loud, and it's like, huh, you know, because the article says everything in it. It says which editor at Bantam Books, uh, and it was Lure Ronica, and uh, who was a young, ed- up and coming editor at Bantam Books, and it had every, all the ingredients were in that little article, you know, um, and I kind of extrapolated from it. I looked at John, I'm like, well. You know, uh, Lou Likes Ted, you know, and Ted's uh, book, The Ceremonies, was a horror, uh, was in the horror genre. It was a great book. And um, I thought, Lou Likes Ted, Ted Likes You, maybe Lou will like us. And so we had our next kind of target of who we were going to aim the manuscript at, because we had kind of sent it around a little bit, gotten rejected, you know, different qualities of rejection. Uh, there are all different types of rejection from simply like, you know, uh, fuck off and die to, uh, you know, well, I can't really do anything with this, but it's, it's, you know, but it's great. Um, and sure. so we had gotten all different types of rejections.
0: In, in And you were doing the conventional thing where we were sending out query letters and trying to get people's attention through the front door.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we had no we had no agent, so we were just winging it as best we could. Right, you know. Um, and if you look at the uh, the uh, yearly um, publishers guide uh, that comes out every year uh, of all the different publishers, uh, all you know, all across the country and everything. Uh, when you look at Bantam Books. Uh, it'll tell you. It'll give you kind of a, a little log line of each company and and what their submission guidelines are and everything. And with Bantam Books, it was ironclad. It's like we do not accept unsolicited manuscripts from unrepresented authors. Period. Just don't even think about it. Um, so you'd think that would be a door just slammed
0: shut right in your face, right? Well, which, by the way, that hasn't changed. I mean, I get emails from writers all the time that that say, how do I overcome this? They keep saying they're not going to accept unsolicited scripts or manuscripts.
1: And, you know, this is where we, to to sort of uh, double back a little bit, this is where that Bugs Bunny-sized hole in the wall starts to appear. Um, Because we knew perfectly well... From experience and also from, you know, what it says in, in all the all the guides, all the guidelines, um, there's no in hell we, two unknown writers with no agent, can possibly get our manuscript to Lua Ronica at Bantam Books. You know, we will never make it past the receptionist. Right, You know, um, the, uh, part of the job of a receptionist at a major publishing house is to turn away writers, sh- unknown writers showing up, you know, at the, at the doorstep bearing five pounds of their heart and soul. Okay, so we knew that was true. Right. I also knew that one of the other things that it was the job of a receptionist to do is to accept anything that a messenger gives her. And so. We did a couple of things here. First, we we boiled the entire 500-page manuscript down into uh, about a two-page-long literary equivalent of a movie trailer. You know, it was just boom, boom, boom. This is the story. This is what it does. It was very
0: thrilling, like like a treatment. You you created a treatment. It
1: was it was just it was just it was like a trailer. It was just all boom, 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 boom. You know, um, yeah, all bang points. Oh. Um, and so, you know, there was kind of a, a strategy going with this too, and so we had that, and then we had, you know, a nice little cover letter from us offering to send sa- sample chapters, you know, and then topped it all off with the uh, a copy of the Ted Klein Twilight Zone recommendation letter, and so instead of five pounds of you know, un- uninvited heart and soul in the form of a 500 page manuscript, it was, it all fit very nicely in one thin manila envelope. And part of this was also understanding from being a messenger that uh, every morning at the publisher, at any publisher, the mail cart trundles down the hall. And, you know, the mailroom guy dumps off the latest offerings at each editor's door. You know, um, and what does anybody do? If you get, you know, a bunch of mail dropped off at your office door every morning,
0: what do you go through first? You're going to go, I think you go through the lightest mail on the pile.
1: Yeah, you go through the light stuff. I mean, you'll see the stuff that you were expecting, da-da-da, you'll put it over here. Oh, great, that came in, you know, and then you got the mystery stuff. You open up the lightest stuff first. And so here was something light. So now you know we had it all ready to go, and now it was simply a matter of the delivery, you know. And to test this theory of of you know what a receptionist is going to do, and so I, um, you know, John had typed it all up because at this point I didn't have a typewriter. Neither one of us had computers. John had the typewriter. I did everything in longhand, um, and so we met. Like you know, like uh, out of some kind of you know cheesy science, fiction, uh, uh, cheesy spy mo- novel or something. You know, we met on the str- on a street corner.
0: Right. Like the, I, I'm just imagining you guys like just calculating every move in this scenario because um, it, it sounds to me like you, you had a plan. Uh, but did did you have a legitimate reason to like? You're trying to figure out how to break into like trying to break through the impenetrable wall. Right. You
1: know, it's like – and and everything is – everything that you hear and read and, and see, it's all like, no, 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 not you. Um, and somewhere you've got to find a crack in that wall or make a crack in the wall. And so, you know, John had come all the way and he was living on Staten Island at that point. And,
0: um, so he has to take the ferry across the –
1: he takes the ferry across, and and then he, you know, we meet at an agreed upon time. I'm working that day, so I'm, you know, I, I skate up to, you know, a subway entrance, and there's John, and he's got the Manila envelope, and he hands it off to me, and I stick it in my bag, and I head over to uh, Bantam Books at 666 Fifth Avenue. And uh, courtesy of that uh, original article in SNFS, I, I knew exactly where Lou Ronica was. A little bit of research, I knew what floor he was on. You know, so yeah, I just you know rolled on in, <laughs> rolled onto the elevator, and rolled on up to like whatever the 28th floor or something.
0: Because n- nobody's going to question a-, a sweaty guy with roller skates looking like a messenger,
1: yeah. yeah nobody's going to question some like kid and like you know who looks like something out of Road Warrior with like knee pads and elbow pads and you know skates on and like, <laughs> messenger bags. Well, of course, he's a messenger, you know. Um, and What I did, and I also, you know, I wrote it up on my manifest so, you know, so that it looked like a legit run, you know, and I filled out a ticket for it and everything, you know, um, and I come skating in and this is the point at which serendipity really starts to kick in, you know, because you can't, you can't script a thing like this in advance because how can you know, but, um, I found out afterwards. That uh, I came in, you know, and I come rolling up to the receptionist and she kind of looks up at me and I'm I'm like, Luronica is expecting this package, Uh, you know, um, sign here. (laughs) And she was looking at me like, I don't know anything about this. And I'm like, I don't know anything about it either. Sign here. Can I use your phone?
0: Right. You're just doing
1: your job. It's like, and she's like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, and she signs and I roll out and I'm done. You know, I'm done. Took the shot. We have no idea what's going to happen. As I found out later, what did happen was that this was an odd thing. This didn't figure into the receptionist's normal flow of, of work, you know. So it's like, what is she to do? She thinks she fucked up, basically. Oh, so she puts it over to the side, and about five minutes later, you know, it's uh, it's getting around lunchtime, and um, Lou Ronica heads out of his office, and he's you know, standing there and waiting for the elevator. Um, and she sees him and she's like, uh, Mr. Veronica, you're expecting this? And she holds it out to him and he's like, I don't know anything about this. She's like, a messenger brought it. And he's like, well, I guess I must be expecting it. You know, and he grabs it and jumps on the elevator. <laughs> now he thinks he fucked up. <laughs> it's because, <like, laughs> you know, Right, because because he has he has the answers to somebody. Well, you know messengers aren't cheap. You know somebody spent money to deliver this thing. You know, um, right. And so he opened it in in the elevator on the way down, and he pulls out. First thing he sees is oh Ted Klein. Oh, okay. You know, just spent a lot of money on him. <clears throat> and then he, you know, he's reading through the thing. You know, he was reading the pitch on the elevator on the way down, and um, and he's like, wow, wow, wow. You know, and he's reading, reading, reading. He's reading as he walks out. You know, it almost our luck almost worked too well because he was just kind of reading as he's walking, turns corner, goes up to the corner, he stepped off into the street, almost got pasted by a cab.
0: Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's like which could have just because he was he was so enthralled in your in your writing.
1: He was just he, he was just reading it, going wow wow wow. You know, and it's like oh yeah, yeah don't get hit. You know. Um, now the other thing to bear in mind is Lou was supposed to be. Having lunch with somebody, and so he didn't bring anything to read. But at the last moment, his lunch date had to cancel. So there he is,
0: having his lunch with nothing to read but this proposal. Oh my gosh! So you had, you had the full attention there, and this is again this was before iPhone so he's not yeah. distracted by you know yeah. social media he's he's reading what you have
1: he's thinking about it and he's looking at it again and he's thinking about it yep and so he you know finishes lunch goes back across street goes up into his office and he just uh, you know knocks out a letter you know saying yeah this looks interesting send me sample chapters and throws it in that day's outbound mail and we got a response the next day
0: and so tell me about that well we had a heart attack
1: just you know cumulative you know because your
0: plan worked by the way your plan yeah
1: it's but you're not thinking like you're gonna hear back the next day you know um and it's like holy shit now what um and now we have to scramble because as i had said you know uh, we only have one typewriter between the two of us you know um and so You know, I go over to uh, John's place on Staten Island and, you know, we're holed up there and I'm like scribbling longhand revisions onto the, you know, onto the first draft. And then John's like feverishly typing out clean second draft of like 120 something pages, you know, to, uh, to send the first X many chapters. Um, And that took us a couple of days to get done. And then we, you know, got that package done and popped it in the mail and uh, and then you know, fingers crossed. It's like, how long is it going to take? We have no idea, you know. And then I, it was some ridiculously short amount of time later. Uh, a couple of days later, like the next week, we got another letter back from Little Ronago saying, "Yeah, this looks great. Send me the rest of the book."
0: That's amazing. And I, I bet you guys, like with every, you know, every every progression you made in, in sort of this, this well-calculated game that you were playing, were there sleepless nights?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Tons of sleepless nights and tons of running on like, you know, uh, adrenaline and terror. <laughs>
0: it's like because because on one hand, you're like, you're like, you're thinking about all the possibilities of what this is going to mean for your career. But on the other side, you're like, oh, man, what if we mess this up?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this is great. This is great. Don't fuck it up. You know, it's like, this is awesome. Don't fuck it up. You know, it's like, you know, and we're we're making it up as we go along. I mean, we're like 24, 25 years old, you know, and we're just like, I don't know. We don't, you know, we don't know. We're making it up as we go. You know, um, but we got it done and, um, and then they sent back the letter saying We like, we want to see the rest of the manuscript and okay, now we're fucked because now it's the same thing all over again, but we got to do the other 400 and some odd pages of the book.
0: Right. So you had the rough outline still, but you didn't actually have any of this stuff. Oh, we had a first draft. Okay. We had a first draft, but we got, we got to do a
1: clean, you know, submission draft,
0: you know, um, plus you're typing on a typewriter. So if you'd make a typo. That yeah. was tough, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, and uh, on a typewriter and then inserting longhand revisions into it,
0: scroll, you know, it was, it was crazy. You know, um, the, the people that complain these days about the barrier to entry, yeah. there is no barrier to entry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and,
1: um, and so we finally got it all done and then we drop it off. And, you know, but at that point we were a little spoiled. You know, it's like, oh, it's like next day the first time and three days the second time.
0: What's it going to be? A week? Oh, right. You know, um, and then- yeah, I didn't think about that, but the momentum of that is, is a little bit on. Un- that doesn't happen yeah. every day.
1: And so, you know, we send it off, and then we don't hear from them for like eight weeks.
0: <laughs> it's like- so so you, go, you go from elation to, to like just depression.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just like, oh, shit. You know, and, you know. And then it's just getting into the summer doldrums, like and everybody's on vacation, so nobody's making any money, you know. And
0: see, see when you when you tell this story, you had you told me something when I was you know really early in all this stuff, and you'd it was some quote you saw um, when you were out doing your your messenger service. You'd gone in the lobby, um, and it was something about there will be no dress rehearsal. What was that? Oh yeah yeah yeah.
1: The the um one day I got. Uh, I had to uh, pick something up, deliver something and pick something up at the original Hard Rock Cafe. Uh, I I believe that was on 57th Street in in New York. You know, and so I go rolling in and I'm just, you know, I'm just having a shit day. You know, it's like bloody hot, you know, and, and miserable. And, you know, I'm sweaty and I'm cranky, you know, and I come rolling in and there's this, Long, arcing staircase against the back wall that goes, you know, up to the second floor where the office is, you know, and I have to go up there, you know, and so I'm just like chunk, 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 you know, in my skates, I'm skating up the stairs, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and I, and I get up there and I roll down to the little doorway to the office, you know, and then you know I drop off and I'm, I'm waiting to pick up and it's like, oh, well, it's going to be a minute, you know? And so they leave and everybody leaves me alone in this tiny little office. And I'm just, I'm just pissed, you know? um And I'm just kind of staring around, you know, and as I'm staring around, I'm, I'm just kind of taking in the details, you know, and there was this little uh, photocopy thing tacked to the wall, you know, and it said, uh, there is no dress rehearsal. We are professionals. This is the big time,
0: right? Because you think about this big time, this opportunity you have, is some life changing thing, and it certainly is. But at the same time, it's about the process and the work. And I know that sounds like a bunch of platitudes until you get into the, you know, in, until the, you get into this a little bit more, and then you have um, some hindsight. Yeah yeah, and I found that quote to be so inspiring. and and to this day, I still think about you telling me about it because it you know, everything we do is a grind and a process. Um, but you have these moments, you know, it's like ninety eight percent grind and then two percent really cool stuff. so so something cool is about to happen. You guys are waiting for this book. you're waiting for some letter to come. something magical is in the work. So, Tell me about that magic.
1: Well, you know, just to finish out the thing, you know, it's like that, seeing that, that, that's just reading the thing. And that was tacked up by, you know, the, the management to, uh, you know, that was tacked up by the management to, you know, motivate their employees at the Hard Rock Cafe, but it changed my whole day. It changed my whole life, you know, cause I was just, you know, there I was in all of my, you know, disgruntled misery, you know, and I'm. And suddenly that that just pierced through, and I'm like, huh, yeah, you yeah, know, that's true. <laughs> it's like, that's true. You know, and I skated down, you know, tunk, 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 down the stairs and went back out on the street, you know, with kind of a whole different <laughs> attitude of like, you know, there is no dress rehearsal. I am a professional, and this is the big time.
0: So, how, how, did, how did the big time come your way?
1: Well, um, one day when you least expect it, you know, it was just uh, one day I, I, I call, you know, I, I finished, I drop off something and I call back into the messenger service, you know, and, um, you know, and uh, our friend Matt uh, Jorgensen was the dispatcher, you know, and I call in. And they hear my voice, and all of a sudden, I hear all this back talk in the background. It's like, let, me tell, let me tell him, let me tell him, let tell him. And Matt's like, shut, him, shut up, I'm going to tell him. You know, and he's like, Craig, John just called, and he wants you to call him right away. You know, and it's like, okay, you know, because John was home, home working that day. You know, and I'm just like, okay, so I'll call John. You know, and it's like. Yeah. I'm still out in the field in the summertime and I'm hot, you know, and and
0: it's just like, right. Right. You're still out in the field, delivering packages.
1: And I call, you know, John at home and John answers, you know, and I'm like, what's going on? You know? And he's like, well, um, uh, we just got a call from Ronica," And I'm like, huh. And he's like, what's you, you know? And, and I'm like, end. And he's like, well, Luronica Ronica loves the book and he wants to buy it. And I was like, huh. you know, and he's, he's like, and he w- wants to know if we have anything else and he wants us to come in and meet, you know? And
0: then there was a, uh, you know, uh, there was a pause as it a kind of all clicked in. Hey filmmakers, I didn't mean to leave you hanging there, but honestly, we were doing that recording and Craig got a call from his mom and he had to go. Listen, if you want the rest of this story, I'm going to be publishing it over the next few episodes. So you're going to want to tune in uh, where Craig's going to talk about not only how the book deal played out, which is really funny, but also how he was able to leverage that to get himself into Hollywood and really take his career to the next level. Uh, in the meantime... I just wanted to make a quick announcement. If you are interested, there is a filmmaking membership site called filmmakingstuffhq.com. filmmakingstuffhq.com is a membership where you can join a community of other like-minded, serious entrepreneurial filmmakers. And head on over there right now, filmmakingstuffhq.com. And I'll see you on the other side.